You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Sure, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Uh, we're, we're turning to John chapter 13, that's f- page 524 in your pew Bible, and we will read verses 1 through 17 of John chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, um, this is uh, this is not a a delayed reaction to some of the Super Bowl ads, the He Gets Us campaigns, and me getting to air out my opinions uh, about those things. Though I certainly have some. We are going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of John, and we have stumbled into John chapter 13, and I believe that the Lord has something special for us, something pretty profound for us to wrestle with today as a church, and so let us turn to the Lord uh, and pray for his help in understanding of this text. Lord God, we thank you for your kindness towards us. Your light has shone into this world through the, the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, and his, his work and his light has shone into our hearts, that you've illuminated our, our minds to think, our hearts to, to rightly desire, that you've shown us what is good and pleasing to you and what it looks like to live according to your will. I pray, Lord, that this morning, that this work that we have uh, before us in this text would help us in, in understanding who you are, 
who we are in light of the gospel, what you would have for us, and how um, through, through radical acts of service unto our glorious king that we have, have the ability to, to change the trajectory of the world. Um, would you help us? Would your spirit be gracious to us and at work among us this morning? Help me to, to think clearly and speak with precision, Lord. Would, would the hearts and minds of the listeners today be open to receive your word? And would it be like a seed planted deep that would bear gr- good fruit? Um, here in this church and far beyond, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Humans have a fascination with glory. Like, like we like, we, we are drawn to, we like the thing that, that seems to be set apart, that, that, that is unlike what is common. We see this all the time where we have people that rise to the top of their field, their industry, to the top of their game. And so when we think of, of glory, we think of names like Yo-Yo Ma or Caitlin Clark or Elon Musk or Tom Brady or Jerry Seinfeld or Max Verstappen. All of these people have, have come up to the top. There's something glorious. They've achieved greatness. And today our passage brings us face to face with the goat, the greatest of all time, who's actually a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're talking about the man, Jesus Christ. And as we see the greatness of Jesus Christ in this text, we actually see what makes him great. And it's not platinum records, it's not sold out venues, it's not championships or medals or accolades. There's something paradoxical, uh, paradoxical about Jesus' greatness. Now if you're just joining us, we're going through the book of John and we are at the final days of Jesus' life. Time is expiring. And, and what we saw in the past chapter, in John chapter 12, there's been a lot of talk about glory, a lot of talk about greatness. Jesus says, uh, it's time for the Son of Man, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus says, I've come to glorify the Father. Father, glorify your name. And God says, I, I've glorified it and I'll do it again. So there's lots of talk about glory, about greatness, about, about this idea of lifting up, of putting in the place of prominence. And as Jesus' final days are expiring, you would think with all of this talk, you would see Jesus being esteemed as one who is great, one who is treated as the one who's given the seat of honor, served, because we just saw the triumphal entry when Jesus came riding in on the donkey into Jerusalem. He's acknowledged as the king, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, the king of Israel, right? He's acknowledged as a king. And so you would think the last days would be just enjoying, basking in that praise, in, in the glory, in the, the greatness, the, the lifting up of Jesus. That Jesus would embrace being served like the king that he is. But in John 13, the opposite of that happens. Instead of reveling in the chants and the cheers of the crowd, Jesus withdraws with 12 of his disciples. He, he gets out of the public eye. Now, there's something to be seen in this because I think this act of Jesus withdrawing from the, the populace, withdrawing from the crowds, withdrawing from the public eye shows us that Jesus knows that greatness is not measured in the eyes of man. Greatness is not measured by, by the ups and downs of public opinion. Jesus knows that greatness is measured in the eyes of God. 
And so not vying for the applause of man, not trying to win a popularity contest, Jesus retreats to obscurity, tucks himself away. But as he tucks himself away with his disciples, he will start to see some teaching. He does ordinary things, really. He's eating, he's uh, reclining with his disciples, he's teaching them, he's, he's sort of laying out his final discourse for them. But these ordinary things that Jesus does are things that God the Father wants him to do. And, and as he eats and teaches and reclines with his disciples, Jesus will change the trajectory of history. See, these, these acts of obscurity, these acts of, of, of private, secluded teaching and eating and reclining set the tone for his disciples. Now, we see a scene here in John 13 where Jesus, it says, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus is, is at another meal. And so there's some debate about, is this the last supper um, or, or is this a meal that precedes the last, I, I'm tend to believe it's a meal that precedes the last supper where Jesus is actually eating with them because it's during this meal that, that Jesus gets up. It says in verse four, um, Jesus rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, it's here in this act that Jesus shows us the way to greatness. The, the way to the top is not to just climb up and to the right. It's not to accumulate power and grasp for people's applause. Jesus shows us the way to greatness is to go low first, to get down. And he shows us this by washing his disciples' feet. Now, for, for the first century audience, this would be baffling. The, this act of getting down, of taking off the outer, outer garment, to get down on his hands and knees, to fill a basin of water, to, to wash his disciples' feet. This would be very shocking to this first century audience. It, not just foreign to us, because we don't, you know, washing feet is not in our daily practice. It was in their daily practice there, but the fact that Jesus got down on his knees and did this was absolutely perplexing. See, that part of the world during the first century, people would wear sandals all of the time. That was their, their primary footwear. Kind of like how people today wear Crocs and Chacos almost everywhere they go. It's the, the, the disgrace. There, there's, there's mixed opinion here. But the idea is, is the feet are exposed. You wear footwear where your feet are exposed. And, and unlike today where we have sidewalks that are paved, and we have nice streets and bike paths and things that we can enjoy and go out there and our feet remain relatively clean. People then did not have that luxury of paved paths. What they did was they had a lot of dirt paths to walk on. Their, their roads were made of dirt and these roads were also shared with dirty animals who left behind the evidence that they had been there. And so not only would people walk on these streets that are full of dust and dirt and debris and general yuckiness, uh, their, their feet would accumulate all kinds of grossness. And so one of the, the um, procedures of hospitality, a gesture of hospitality in that part of the world would be as you entered into someone's house, 
uh, your, your feet would be washed. You, you would be sort of cleansed. It's an act of kindness that said, hey, welcome in. We're, we're welcoming you into this. Now, this was a task that was not necessarily performed by the, um, the head of the house. Um, this was viewed as a very degrading task. Um, and so it, it got pushed off onto the lowliest of servants. So you come into a house. It wasn't, it wasn't the person who owns a house that would wash your feet. It was their lowest of lowest servants because this, this is not only a gross activity to wash dirt off people's feet. This is, this is to assume a lowly position at the lowest part of the body, which is embarrassing and humiliating. For this reason, it was reserved for the lowest ranking of servants. If if you were washing somebody's feet, you were at the bottom of the totem pole, no doubt about it. You were at the absolute bottom. And so this is what makes this perplexing, is Jesus, who we've seen talking about the glory, the greatness of, of himself as the son of man, is going to glorify the Father. He gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. He goes low and gets dirty. Now, this is why Peter's reaction is, is indignant. When he sees Jesus in verse six, he, he gets down. P Peter is just baffled by this. So Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. So, so here Peter is seeing Jesus is humiliating himself. Jesus is, is uh, degrading himself in the eyes of that first century culture. And Peter says, I, I won't allow it. I won't have any part of this. And so the, the, the disciples are like, what are, you, what are you doing? This is below you. This is beneath you. And Jesus, knowing what he's doing, he says, listen, guys, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. This, this is gonna seem strange to you, but one day this will make sense. S soon, this will make sense. You, you'll, you'll get it, it'll click in a moment. Now, you'll see while there's indignance, is that right? In, Peter's indignant, so whether that, that phrase is right. Um, Peter is indignant. And you'll notice that while there's that impulse uh, to be upset about what Jesus is doing, there is no impulse for the disciples to take over the role of feet washing for Jesus. So, so in the room, there is clearly some kind of a hierarchy. And Jesus makes note of this, that I'm teacher, I am Lord, and you are my servants. You, you are my messengers. I, I, have, I have the message, you are the messenger. So Jesus is saying, I'm in this room, I am top dog, yet... I'm going low. I'm getting on my hands and knees. But the disciples, there, there is no impulse for them as the lower man on the totem pole to take over for Jesus. Have you ever, ever noticed that? There's no like Peter, like, no, let me, let me handle that for you, Jesus. This is way beneath you. I, I am your servant. Let me do this for you. There is none of that, which would be fitting for a disciple to do. But they're all of the mind that this act of washing feet is beneath me, it's below me. And they're looking at Jesus, it's especially beneath you. Why are you doing this? But Jesus doesn't see it that way. 
Jesus doesn't see the washing of feet in the way that his disciples see it. Jesus sees this as essential work that the Father has appointed for him to do. In verse 8, when, after Peter says, um, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. See, this act is not only necessary for Jesus to do, but it's essential for the disciples to receive from him. This is part of sharing with Christ, understanding who he is. And so after Jesus asserts this, listen, if you want to be part of me, you have to receive this. If you want to be associated with me, you're going to have to take this. You have to be served by me. Now, here's here's something that is a a hurdle for not yet Christians to get over. A lot of times people think, okay, well, I've got my life together. You know, I... Jesus, I might need a little boost from Jesus just to get me up over the hump, just to make sure the scales of right and wrong and good and bad tip in my favor. I I just need a little, I don't need Jesus to to humiliate himself for me. And so there's this denial of of what I actually need from Jesus. There's this denial to to receive his service and his, his grace that's given to us. And if we, like Peter, deny, then we miss out. We see, Jesus, uh, see Peter go from saying, no, I won't, I won't ever let you wash me to then overcorrecting, which Peter is, he's hilarious, guys. He just flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop. He's, just, he's always the first guy to blurt something out. Just no filter, whatever he's thinking, he's gonna say it. And then he hears what Jesus says, if you wanna share pardon me, then you have to let me do this for you. And then Peter goes all in, and he says, then, then not just my feet, but wash everything. Verse nine. He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Or did I, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was gonna betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Now he's speaking here of Judas, the betrayer. And we'll talk about Judas next week. But here, Jesus lays out, listen, if you want to pardon me, you need to, to wash. Let me wash you. Wash your feet. And Peter overreacts and says, then wash all of me. Give me a bath, buddy. And Jesus says, that's not necessary. Peter wants him to go grab the hose. And Jesus says, that's not the, we don't need to do that. And then Jesus, after he does this, Peter, Peter sort of receives what, what Jesus does for him, finishes washing all the disciples' feet. And Jesus, when he had finished washing their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Now, to be honest with you, like, this is a passage that I, like, I I get the big picture of this, the humility of Jesus, okay? So, like that. But but there's always been something perplexing about the response that Jesus has. So, like, what, what would stop Jesus from totally just going, yes, Peter, grab the hose. Let's go wash down. You, you need it. You're a big sinner. We'll handle that. There's things about this that always perplex me a little bit here. And so when Jesus asks us questions, do you understand what I've done to you? I, I think that there are at least three things that we need to grasp. Three things here from this scene that we need to grasp. Number one, um, 
I think it's specified in Jesus' response to Peter. The fact that he says, you, I don't, you don't need your whole body wash. If, if you're already taking a bath, you don't need to do it again. I don't, I don't need to wash your hands and your head. But I, I, re, I think the reason why Peter goes to this extreme and says, just wash all of me, is because Peter, he's been walking with Jesus long enough to see that the way that Jesus talks in these parables, in these parallels, he uses, he uses allegory, he uses metaphor to explain a spiritual reality. And so I think, to give Peter the benefit of the doubt, I think Peter sees this parallel that's, that's being made between dirt and sin. This is, this is a common phrase. I, we've been reading through Leviticus and Numbers the last few weeks in our Feast to Flourish Bible reading plan. And so you can see that there, there's a lot of talk about what's clean, what's unclean. What's dirty, what's clean. And so this is, a, this is a framework that God has for his people. But one of the things that, that helps us understand the difference between dirty and clean is that which is infected by sin and that which is pure or righteous. That which uh, is restrained from sin and that which is given into sin. And so I think Peter, having about three years of his time with Jesus, sees this link between the talk of dirty feet and dirty hearts. He sees the connect between dirt and sin, and that's why he says, not just, not just wash my feet, but wash all of me. Peter understands the infectious nature of sin. The, the Apostle Paul talks about this uh, when writing to the Corinthians when he says the little leaven ruins the whole lump. The, the talk about how sin, this little thing, this little, or even, even the tongue in James, this little thing can have a profound effect. It, it distorts and destroys everything. In the same way, just a little bit, it says, if you've broken even one command, you've broken them all. This is the infectious nature of sin. And so I see why Peter would have that reaction. Then wash all of me. Like I, it's just not my feet are dirty. My whole body is unclean. And he's thinking, if this is what it takes to associate with you, Jesus, then go grab the bucket and hose. Wash me up. See, there's a reality here that Peter is expressing, and that reality is that we all come to Christ dirty and defiled. We, we all come to Christ with hearts that have been infected by sin, like a cancer that spreads throughout the whole body. And we need a thorough cleansing. We need this profound, like, think of like a deep scrub. You, every once, you know, once a year, you, you spend time scrubbing your kitchen so it's spotless and immaculate. Like, that's the kind of clean to get every little inch and speck of dirt out of the house. That's the kind of thorough cleaning that our, our souls need. It's not just for the sins that we've committed, but the, the good things that we've left undone. There is a dirtiness of every single human heart that as we come to Christ, before we come to Christ, that's, that's the reality. Now, when Jesus denies Peter the whole body washing, I, I don't think Jesus is denying that. In fact, I would argue he's not. We have good reason to say that Jesus understands as God the infectious nature of sin. In fact, that's why he came to earth. So Jesus isn't denying this nature of sin. Rather, he denies Peter's request for the bath. Now, th this, is this is why I'm perplexed a lot of times by this passage is, is because, like, why, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus turn down this request from Peter? 
And the answer is because Peter, verse 10 tells us, Peter is already declared clean. Verse 10, he's, and Jesus uses this parallel. He, there's a difference in the word of bathing and washing or, or, or rinsing that Jesus uses in this passage of, of differentiating between like a thorough washing and a spot clean. And Jesus tells Peter that you are already clean in verse 10. You are already clean, but not every one of you. Now, the, the you in this passage is a plural you, speaking to all of the disciples, not just Peter, except for one, Judas, the betrayer. So this, this is how we make sense of this. The reason why Jesus denied this is, or denied giving Peter this bath is because he said, you're, you're already clean. I've already declared you clean. Now, now we don't really know when this happened. Like there's no point in, in John's gospel up to this point where it's like c completely obvious where Peter's faith or any of the disciples' faith has been placed in Jesus and that they've been, been deemed righteous by their proclamation of faith. We don't know when this bath, this conversion moment really took place. And I think that's, that's the same for many of us who have grown up in the church We've grown up in the church, we, we, we've, our, our whole life, we, we've known who Jesus is, we know that what God has done for us in, in the gospel, and we've, we've have, from a very young age, believed that. And so it's hard to pin down, at least for me, it's hard to pin down exactly when I was saved. But nonetheless, Jesus says that this cleansing, this bath took place. Now we know this because Jesus declares this to be true. Jesus, this is, this is a state that Jesus declares, this isn't like, oh, I don't know, did you punt, did you say the right prayer? Did you walk the aisle? Jesus declares that this is the reality. You are cleaned. And so it doesn't matter when this cleaning took place. All that we need to know is that it happened. And Jesus is definitively saying, Peter and the rest of you 10 guys, you are clean. It's by faith in Jesus that they have been clean. Over these three years, this faith is growing and maturing. They're seeing that Jesus is the Son of Man. They see that they're picking up the pieces here and collecting all the data of God, how God is going to redeem the world through this Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And somewhere, at some point, they've been cleansed. They've been declared righteous. Now, if you are a Christian, you too have already underwent that kind of cleaning. If your faith is in Christ, you have been bathed, not, not by water, but by the blood of the lamb. And this is something that was set before the foundation of the earth. Jesus declared that these people, these elect, my, my own, will be clean. And it's by grace through faith that we receive this. So if you are a Christian, you have been washed by the blood of Jesus, this deep clean. As Isaiah says, though your sins were as scarlet, now it's white as snow. Your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. You see all of this purification, in fact, all of the temple purification ritual that the high priests need to go through, all of this is setting up, it's a type, it's, it's a shadow of the kind of cleansing that God's people as a whole would, would take on through the work of Christ. And so this is something that has happened. You have been washed. Yet, as Christians... 
we still struggle with sin, right? We have this, we have this battle between the old self and the new self, the, the self of the flesh, driven by the desires earthly in its nature and desires, and the spirit of God, which is to lead us into righteousness. There's this internal battle that is waging. And as we come face to face, as those who have been washed yet somehow still manage to get our feet dirty, we're still getting into dirt and muck and sinning, things that we know we ought not to do or things that we know we should do but don't do. We are in need of a spot cleaning. And I think one of the one of the um, one of the things that has messed with the head of evangelicals is this idea that, that if I if I'm if I'm still sinning, if I find myself still tripping into sin and and doing the things I know I not ought to do and and, and not doing things I know I should do, we have this mentality that the first wash that we received in Christ wasn't efficient. It wasn't sufficient. And so we have this, this nagging thing going on in our hearts that we need, to, we need to be rewashed. We need to rededicate our life to Christ. We need to walk the aisle again. We gotta say the prayer again and again and again and again. See, what we need to realize is, is that though we find ourselves dirtied with sin, it's not because the first wash didn't work. We, we don't need to go back and rehash every single old sin that, that before our conversion to Christ. We, we don't need to go back and rehash that and start feeling bad about that and heaping up guilt on ourselves for that because Jesus has already dealt with those sins. And this is one of the reasons that why so many Christians feel paralyzed today because they have all of this baggage of the stuff that I've done before and I just, oh man, I never can, I never can shake out of this. It's just defining me. For, no, you need to understand that has been dealt with. Christ has paid for those sins. He's nailed them to the cross. You don't need to pull them back down off the cross. And so if you find yourself feeling bogged down by those sins of the old self, uh, of the pre-conversion self, you need to look to the cross. See that they've, they've been dealt with. And, and here's the thing. Now, I know the enemy, like he's called the accuser. So one of, the, one of the tactics of the enemy to, to render you useless in service to the mission of God is to bring up all the past stuff that you've done and try to make you feel like a scumbag and forget the fact that they've been dealt with already. So the enemy comes at you as the accuser. So, so a lot of times, that's one of the things that we need to pay attention to. If I'm, if I'm getting, all these things are popping back up in my mind, in my heart, I'm feeling accused. You, you need to be able to identify, ask the Lord, is this you, God, or is this the accuser coming after me, trying to rattle me, try, trying to, to um, weaken my confidence in the work of Christ? You have to ask that question. 
But we also need to understand that though, though God has forgiven sins, there, there are times where God brings up things in our past that either remind us of, of the um, overwhelming grace that God has for us. It's like every once in a while, I'll be going along and I'll think of something that I did in my past that is absolutely humiliating. And, and, and in that moment, I'm asking, is this the accuser coming after me or is this the Lord reminding me of his steadfast love to me and how it's already been washed? And if that's the case, then I can receive that with gladness. And there, there might be some teaching in this because the Lord tends to bring things up so that from our, our place of humility, from the place of, of we've been served, that we can serve other people. But if that, that old stuff is being brought up in a way that's meant to debilitate you, to, to paralyze you, you need to look to the cross. You, you don't need to rehash every single old sin that Jesus has dealt with. Now what you do need for the sins that you've committed by commission or omission as, as a Christian, you do need to be cleansed of those sins. You need a, a specific post-conversion cleansing. And this is one of the reasons why both personal and corporate repentance, when we come and we confess our sins together as the church, when hopefully you're, you're in your Bible and, and the Spirit is prompting you and convicting you of sins that you've either, either done or have left undone, we have this impulse of repentance. because this is part of our, our struggle in this life. And the way that we live as the cleansed people of God is that we shed what defiles us. We put off that which restrains us from, from running after our Lord. And so this is a, this is a crucial piece. Christian, you, you, cannot, you cannot live a life in good conscience without having a regular rhythm of repentance and faith. And to be honest with you, you need it more than just Sunday. You need it Sunday mornings as we gather together as a church. This is one of the things that we do together. But this is part of your daily life. Confession, repentance, receiving of grace. This, this washing. So, so I think that in some way, what we see in this picture is, though as God's people, we've been washed thoroughly already. We, we've, been def, we've been declared clean. We still end up getting our feet dirty. We need that. We need that washing. We don't have to redo the whole thing, but for those specific sins, we need to be washed. Now, the second thing that we need to grasp here in this, this story is the humility of Jesus. In fact, I would say that this is probably the primary thing this is the one thing of the text. This is the primary thing. We see the humility of Jesus, and he even points out to this, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. So this is the, the hierarchy. I am the teacher. You are the student. I am the Lord. You are my subjects. And you are right for thinking of me as such. I am the teacher. I am the Lord. And if your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. So here is this picture that Jesus, he, though he's the top of the food chain, he, he's the high authority, he shows his humility by going low. He sets, just as he set aside his outer garment, it's something that's noted twice, which you're like, I wonder why it's talking about this. J Jesus set aside his greatness, he set aside his glory. He, he humbled himself, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. And Jesus here takes the lowliest of positions to wash his disciples' feet. 
This is greatness. This is greatness going low. But more than just getting down on his hands and knees and washing feet, Jesus humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. See, we cannot understand the significance of this foot washing without the connection to the cross. See, while, while this act of washing feet is, is certainly scandalous, it's, it's, it's perplexing, the cross overshadows that to an even greater extent. And we see that it's by this cross that Jesus doesn't just remove sin, he becomes sin. Jesus becomes sin. He who knew knew no sin becomes sin for us. That, That he takes on the sin, the filth, the grossness, the yuckiness of our sins and it's nailed to the cross. He takes on our sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. There's this exchange that happens. Jesus takes ours, we get his. And in this, he takes our place, he pays. We're told in Romans that sin was condemned in the flesh. And this is what true greatness looks like. Jesus does the thing that only Jesus can do. There's nobody else who's ever lived, who's ever ever walked on the face of the earth who could do this task, could go to the cross and pay for the sins of God's people. Nobody, because Jesus is perfect. Because Jesus lived the righteous life that we fail to live every day. That Jesus was not like his disciples. He did not need cleansing because Jesus from day one always did what was good, right, and perfect. And so as the perfect son of God, he then can take on the sins of the people, not needing to pay for his own sins, but able to take every sin onto himself. And so he goes low. He, he does only what he can do. This is what true greatness really is. Now, the question for this is why, why does Jesus do this? What, what would compel Jesus to, to go so low for us? Because if we, if we, like we saying, like, um, how, how could he love us, a sinner condemned and clean? What, what, would, what would even put a, the, the smallest inkling in Jesus' mind that, yeah, this is a worthwhile cause? What would do that? Well, what would be so convincing for him to, to take the lowliest of positions? And I think that the answer to that question certainly is summed up in, in what we saw in, of, of the Father's name being glorified in this, this larger conversation of glory. But, but I think that it, you can even trace it back to verse three when it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from his supper. So here, here's why. Here's what enabled to do, Jesus to do this. He knew that he had come from the Father and he was going to return from the Father. He knew that the Father had entrusted all things into, he had given all things into his hands. Jesus, he had it all. Jesus had it all. He had nothing to lose. It belonged to him. And it wasn't like a lot of times fear of compromising our status or, or maybe uh, taking a, a ding on our reputation, or fear of, of what other people think about us, the, the, the approval of man. A lot of times those things keep us from doing the most necessary thing. 
again, what, what is that? that, that that's being influenced, not, not by understanding greatness is, is coming to us in the eyes of God, but, but thinking that greatness comes through the, the eyes of popular opinion. See, Jesus knew the Father sent him and he was going back to the Father. He, he knew that the Father was pleased with him. And he knew all things had belonged to him, had been placed in his hands. Nothing could be lost. He knew that he had come from glory, had entered into this world to go low, and he would be, once again, elevated to glory, to the name above every name, the king of every kings. Jesus had it all. There's nothing he could lose. The only thing he could do is gain. And because all things were Jesus, he was willing to go low. He was willing to go, go low, to get dirty. Now, we need to follow this logic. If, if, if everything had been entrusted to Jesus' hand, and, and that's what enabled him to go low, then we need to understand this. Because all things belong to Jesus, and of these all things are us, Christians, and we are called in Romans 8, 17, co-heirs with Christ. So, so Jesus has all things, and now we are co-heirs. That means all things are ours in Christ. And if all things are ours in Jesus Christ, then we can adopt the same posture, the same humility as our teacher and Lord. That means that we too are freed from going low because what is his is ours. And so this is the third point here. The third thing that we need to grasp from this passage is that Jesus is our example to emulate. He's not just, he's not just the servant who saves us, yes, but he's the servant that we are to emulate, the example that we are to follow. You see this in verse 15. He says, for I have given you an example that you, should, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly. So whenever you see that truly, truly, it says pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. See, Jesus tells us point blank, like, I'm giving you an example. Christian, this is your template. This is, this is what it looks like to follow your Lord, your teacher. Now, the good news about this is that the path of greatness, of true greatness, of greatness in the eyes of God, is not reserved for a small minority of people that are able to reach the upper echelon of achievement. True glory is open to all Christians. True glory is open to us as we go low, as we get dirty, as we emulate Jesus and serve. Only Jesus can get up on the cross for our sins. But, but one of the ways that we emulate Christ is by pointing to the good news of the gospel, is by telling people about what Christ has done to serve us, to deliver us, to cleanse us of our sins, and continues to cleanse us of our sins. And so we, as followers of Jesus, we serve one another just as Jesus has served us. This is one of the reasons why when we talk at Sacred City about our, our gospel identities and rhythms, one of our primary identities, we talk about being family, we're adopted into God's family, we're missionaries, God brings us into the family to send us back out. We talk about that we are uh, learners, that we are to follow and, and emulate Christ. But, but it, one of the things, the primary things that we emulate Christ in is our servanthood, to live like servants, in our homes, in our church, in our city, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. 
We follow Christ's example and we go low. We get dirty. Now, a lot of, a lot of Christian traditions think like the way that we do this is by actually making like foot washing a, a ceremonial thing that we just do every once. Like that's the point of, that's not the point of this. Foot washing is not another sacrament that Jesus gives the church to actually, no, what Jesus is after is the disposition of that of a servant. He, he shows us the greatest picture of what it looks like to be a servant and he says go and do likewise. The posture is what he's after that we are to understand that as servants to Christ, even as co-heirs, we are errand boys, errand errand girls for Jesus. We are to carry out his work in particular places and particular times. And and if we just paint with broad strokes and ask the question, how? how? How do we live like servants? I'm sure we'll have our share fair of opening doors for people and being friendly. Of, of raking neighbors' yards and helping with snowy driveways, which I hope we have no more of this year. I'm sure it will be full of all kinds of good works that, that we look at and say, that, that is virtuous, that, that's kind-hearted, that's, that's servant-hearted. Certainly, yes, to those. It'll look like serving in kids' ministry and helping out, seeing these little kids that the Lord has given us grow up in the faith serving in our new youth group, serving on the hospitality team, playing in the band, running slot, you know. There's so many different places where this actually gets worked out, but, but the primary place where this gets worked out, the primary place where we assume the role of, of, of servants, first primarily serving as unto the Lord, but for the benefit of other people, is within our home. It starts in the home. Husbands, you are called, your, your act of service to your family is to lead your family in a Godward direction. Your act of service is leadership in the home. And in fact, Ephesians 5 t- talks about this. It's, it's set up in the whole context, primarily here in, in the relationship with your wife, and, and it all trickles down from there. But, but you are to serve her, to lead her, in the washing of the water of the word. That that you are to love her and serve her by leading her through what the scripture tells us. In caring for her heart, in calling her to the mission that God has placed before you. This is how you serve, by leading. And wives, you, you serve your husband in submitting to your husband as unto the Lord. Uh, we just had uh, that marriage conference a couple weeks ago and it just framed, it's like this, this, is, this creates an ecosystem, like a, a marriage like that creates an ecosystem both of servanthood and blessedness like a fruitful place. It's, it's like a garden that's been tended. The, the, the soil is fertile. The sun is bright. The water's plenty. And goodness and glory pop up from that. And as it does, we call our children to obey their parents because this is right, this is fitting. And as we create this, this ecosystem of hope, Jesus points out that to do these things, to serve in these specific capacities brings about blessedness. He says in verse 17, if you know these things, 
if you know the way to become great is to go low, and if you do them, blessed are you if you do them. See, this is what Jesus is proposing here is the way of servanthood is not a drab, I guess I got to do. It's not an agitated, kind of um, bemoaning posture of, oh, here's the work that I got to do. I guess I, no, this, Jesus is saying, this is the way toward blessing. This is the way to fruitfulness. This is the way to flourishing. Blessed are you if you do this. Now, of course, this, this extends beyond our own household. It certainly takes place there. You see this. You see, see the servant-hearted husbands serving by leading wives, uh, submitting to their husbands, um, caring for their home, children obeying parents as is right and pleasing to the Lord. You see all this stuff. But then we also see ourselves not just as, as families that are scattered throughout the city, but a, a family of families who have been brought together. That in people who have been washed by the blood of Christ, we've been joined together by the blood of Christ. We have this unity in Christ as the family of families is collected together. So then what does it look like to live as a family of families unto one another? What does it look like to take this servant-hearted posture and move that out into the church family? I mentioned several of these already, but... But I think one of the things that we have to see is, is there is both a physical and spiritual component to this. To serve our church family, like to serve your church family might mean that your Saturday might be gobbled up by moving somebody from, from one house to another. Live like a ser- servant. It, it might look like being sore the next day. It, it might look like, it might look like helping somebody with their garden, pulling weeds. It might take the shape of these very practical things, but there's also, there's also a spiritual component, this relational component. Like what good is it if we take care of all the physical goods but neglect the spiritual aspects of caring for one another? What good is it if if we just put all the priority on on meeting the needs and not actually getting to the heart of the matter? This means that one of the things that we do, like this is what it looks like to go go low. It it might look like staying up 45 minutes late, later than you would like to, to talk with somebody through a hard time, to, to listen and provide biblical counsel. It might look like stepping into a conversation that you know is going to be hard and messy. It might mean saying a hard word but a gracious word. These are things that, that if, we're, if we're doing the physical things and neglecting the spiritual things of caring for one another's heart, of, of reminding each other of the gospel and what Christ has done and calling each other to walk in this newness of life and living as those who have been cleansed from our sins and give glory to God in our every way of life. If we are people that neglect the spiritual matters, then our church will be a spiritually bankrupt church. See, one of the things that, that we ought to, to just embrace as Christians is seeing the pattern of Christ is saying, there is nothing beneath me. 
There's nothing beneath me. There's nothing beneath me because there's nothing beneath Christ. He got as low as he could go. And if I'm supposed to imitate him, if he's my example, then what's stopping me from going? You need to remember the gospel. And remembering the gospel will help you become an effective servant. And this way of going low in the name of Jesus Christ is the way to blessedness. This is the way to greatness. If you want to be great, and I think it's not wrong to want to be great, as long as we're being great according to the right definition of greatness, right? Greatness is, comes to us uh, in God's view of things, not greatness from the view of other people's. In order to be great, you must go low. You must sacrificially serve. And when Christians do this in their home, in the church, in the city, I mean, we didn't even talk about what it looks like to be a servant in your workplace. When we do this, it creates an ecosystem, not just of servants, service, but an ecosystem of blessedness. Where people are, are served well and God is glorified. And God honors a place like that. As we live in this ecosystem of blessedness, we, we get these micro doses of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We get a little taste, a snippet of what heaven is gonna be like. Because that, that's what it, heaven is, just eternal blessedness. Like a constant, like we can't even fathom it. And so we get these micro doses of it here on earth, this foretaste. And as we, we live this way, as we take on our servant identity as Christ has served us, the kingdom of heaven swells here on earth. The kingdom of heaven swells so that more people, having received the kindness that's channeled from God through us, goes out and they experience the grace of Jesus Christ in word and deed. And every act of service that we do is an opportunity. Why are you like this? Why are you always being so friendly and opening the door? Why are you taking care of people? Why are you making these meals? Why are you opening your home to strangers? Why are it's because I have been served in the gospel like you would not believe. Every opportunity we have to serve one another is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of what we've received, how we've been, how we've been served by Christ. And this meal that we're about to share is, is a reminder of that. That Jesus came knowing that his body would be broken, that his blood would be shed. In fact, this, this Passover meal that's to come, Jesus sits at the table with his disciples and he says, this is my body that's been broken for you. Take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. And the same night he took the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the forgiveness. My blood shed to cleanse you of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. So Christian, as you come to the Lord's table, remember that you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Yeah, you, you need God's forgiveness, and this is one of the reasons why this is a weekly meal. We need to be forgiven of the sins that we've accumulated in the past week, but, but in the big picture, uh, our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Though they were scarlet, they've been made white as snow. And this meal reminds us of that, and it's an invitation to have this, this cleansing. We've, we've, we've confessed our sins. We've, we've received the absolution. And so let us take of this 
and know that in this meal, in this act of, of servanthood, we've been served profoundly by Christ. And let this meal equip us to go and serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your kingdom is an upside down kingdom. That things are, to our, our modern sensibilities, our natural sensibilities, they seem so perplexing that the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the rabbi of all rabbis would stoop so low. We pray that you would show us the glory in that. We pray that you show us the greatness of that and that Jesus going low, so low as to, to, to death on a cross, that we would see our sins forgiven, that we would be able to, that we would be credited with his righteousness and from that place, from this new identity, we would be able to live in a way that brings honor and glory to your name through servant-hearted works. God, we pray that you would equip us for this in this meal. Bless us. And we ask that you would be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.